Benny Hinn's favorite radio personality, broadcasting legend, Drew Marshall. Picture it, the seventh hole at one of the most breathtaking golf courses found along any coast, Pebble Beach, radiating against a golden hour sunset. Lisa and John drive up to the hole to play one last game of skins. Photographers are secretly hiding in the bushes and Lisa, who doesn't suspect a thing, loses the hole. As she retrieves her ball, something catches her eye. John has hidden the ring box in the hole. With the flash bulbs popping, he asks Lisa to marry him in the most perfectly orchestrated proposal two avid golfers could ask for. <laughs> is, are you translating this song for us right now? Is that what yes, this saying? is what the singer is actually oh, saying right now. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Wait, you heard that part? Yeah. She just said Pebble Beach is a golfer's paradise for Lisa and John. It will forever remain their favorite place. To play together. But, but did she say yes? We didn't hear that. Yes! Oh, she okay. Yes. All right, all right, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us from somewhere down on the West Coast, John O'Hurley, who uh, has done a bunch of fancy stuff that people really love. John, how are you? I'm fine. I have never heard a more perfect operatic oratorio of my engagement. <laughs> 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 You have floored me. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I like to do. Um, Just before we begin, I have one prayer that I would like to throw up, and that is, Oh, God, let me be surprised. Oh, you're taking my words. (laughs) You say this before every performance of Chicago or every performance of everything? Every time before I go on stage, that's the one prayer I say. Wow. It's simple, but it's very directed, and uh, it's very purposeful. It it calms me, and it allows me to live in the moment and to know that everything that I have and am uh, will be enough to process and get me through what I need to do. John, would you prefer your career to be in the hands of editors or a live audience? Well, I always say I love uh, live stage because there's something compelling about silence. And I think an actor, if he is worth his uh, weight at all, is able to command silence. Anybody can get laughs. Those are built into the script. You just have to have a a percussive sense of timing to deliver a joke, and you get a laugh. But that's not what I love. What I love is being able to walk across a stage on Broadway and not say anything at all Hmm. for 10 seconds. And if if I have done my job then I have earned the right to do that. And the audience will be sitting there going, what's he going to say next? What's he thinking? Yeah. Which is exactly what I want. But an actor has to earn that right. So that's much more compelling. You don't get that on television. You don't get that time on television. You don't get that time in the movies, actually. Uh, things have to move along. There's always got to be, you know, clip, clip, clip. But on stage, you get that. So yeah. I find it much more compelling to be on stage. I, uh, I've i had the privilege of joining some friends of mine who were all sort of old rodeo buddies, and, and uh, we were part of the stunt team uh, 
working with stock animals and, and nothing fancy. I mean, we we were in, I think the fanciest thing we were in was Cinderella Man with Renee Zellweger and Russell Crowe, and we had all these great close-up scenes. I mean, the boom those, camera those was... Two well-known old cowpoke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And and I remember the even that boom camera swinging right in front of my face at this one point. I was unloading sheep off the back of a truck in front of mm-hmm. uh, Union Station in Toronto or whatever it's called. It's called Union Station, Tim? It is today. Okay. And, uh, and so you go to the movie and you want to see yourself and you realize the reason the movie costs so much is because they cut about i don't know 300 rolls of film out of stuff and they just cut and cut and cut oh, and cut oh they shoot every scene 50 to 1 yeah yeah it's, it's it's ridiculous it's an editor's medium i've always said about uh, movies i can create a, a decent performance out of someone who has no idea what they're doing just by telling them to just look in the camera yeah. or look to the left of the camera and just say this one word this way. Yeah, yeah. And then that's all you need. And then you can just I said, now look into the camera, look away, look down. I've got, all, I've got three reactions right there. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can create a performance. You can't do that on stage. Why don't you watch what you do? Or was it just Seinfeld that you never watched? Because they always, never, cut, the, they always cut the Peterman monologues. Come on! Yes, I know. It seems unfair. But the show is always too long. No, I mean, let's get back to your original question. I don't watch what I do because I'm not entertainment to myself. I enjoy the moment the way I shot it. So all of Seinfeld, to me, was theater. And we shot in front of a live audience, so it had the feeling of theater to mm-hmm. a certain degree. But it's a theatrical moment. I like to remember the way that we shot it rather than what the editor finally produced because that's I, I can't control that. And too much of what I did ended up on the cutting room floor because we were infinitely too long every week. We were 10 minutes too long. So they had to clip everything that wasn't plot-driven. So all of the good Peterman monologues and all that really funny yeah, stuff. Yeah, like yeah. That. But that's all right. So, you know, so it goes. But I, I, I'm a happier man if I don't... I haven't seen myself dance on Dancing with the Stars. I didn't watch Family Feud. I didn't. I don't. I don't watch what I do. I'm just happier if I don't because then I don't get hung up. At, well, I, you know, my hair should look this way, or I should be sitting this way with my shoulders down. I don't get into any of that. I could just say, I remember the moment fondly. Yeah. All I care about. Okay, hold on. I just have to pause for a second. Can we just? Talk? I have to talk about your hair. Come on. <laughs> Some of it is real. Stop it. Which part? <laughs> Stop it. I don't even know what the question is other than... Well, we're bald. So. Dude, nice hair. It, sound, it sounds like a Cheech and Chong line, but hey, man, who cut your hair? Yeah, man, this is yeah, a good river. river. Um, yeah, you know, I, just, I was just blessed with good hair. I was just really lucky. I you know. hate you. I just hate you. And uh, it's, it's actually my grandmother's hair, believe it or not. You know, you kind of skip a generation, I think, with uh, some of your attributes mm. genetically. And my, this is my grandmother's, who, by the way, was French-Canadian on half my side. Half the O'Hurleys are uh, French-Canadian. I'm well, so sorry. O'Hurley does sound French-Canadian. <laughs> yeah, O'Hurley, the best French-Canadian uh, <laughs> in, fact, in fact, my uh, my uncle was Minister of uh, Defense uh, under Diefenbaker there. Shut Defense up. Defense production, yeah. yeah. I had to check I, that I out. All he, I think all he did was put the, uh, I think all he did was put the six submarines in the Edmonton Mall. I think that's all he did. <laughs> If you take a ride, it's because of my uncle. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if you had anything to do with the Avro Arrow. I don't know. You don't know? Uh, no, I'm saying I don't yeah. know. Well, maybe we can find out okay, from the... Okay, go do okay, your research. Right, right. You shouldn't even have a microphone. Okay. John, I think you're lying about something, though, because I have heard you say that you watched this movie that we're talking about today, Swing Ah, uh, yes, yes. This is the one exception I've taken. 
I have been to uh, four different screenings of the film that opens uh, this week uh, in the U.S. and uh, premieres here, yeah. and it's going to have a special screening in uh, Toronto this weekend, Sunday. It's uh, it's it, and it would part, partly because a I love watching the film. I love the message of the film. I loved being in the film, and it was such an unusual experience for me that I did watch it. And I also, I'll add to that is that the producer emptied his wallet of every penny he has in his life to put this film together. It's taken over seven years, so I felt I owed it to him to be not only the spokesman for the film but also kind of the hood ornament and uh, um, and also to go and watch it and support it. So it's uh, it's it's been a, a labor of love to uh, watch this thing. Sure. It's like the little film that could. That could, yeah. Well, John currently stars with Shannon Elizabeth, American Pie, scary movie, in this movie called Swing Away. And here's the uh, the little bio. Following a meltdown, I mean, on television meltdown, that leads to a suspension, professional golfer Zoe Papadopoulos, Papadopoulos uh, played by Shannon Elizabeth, travels to her grandparents' village in Greece to escape the harsh spotlight of the international sports world. And between baking bread and eating baklava, she meets and mentors a 10-year-old girl who is determined against all odds to become the next golf sensation. And along the way, Zoe rediscovers her Greek heritage and her love of the game and the hidden strength within herself as she inspires the townspeople in an epic showdown against a greedy D-bag American developer known as John O'Hurley. Thank you very much. Um, so, first of all, what's your handicap? Uh, well, I'm a single digit. I'm a, I'm a single digit. Man, I just don't like you at all. <laughs> uh, and you played competitively in high school. I did. But, I, did. But I, I tried in college, but uh, it, it was too, too much competition between uh, the theater and, uh, and yeah. golf. So, yeah. one. Yeah. So this greedy American developer that you play in the, in the movie Swing Away, did you really tell the director, look, I know this character better than you can write it, so just back off and let me talk? It's, I, I wrote this entire role myself. Wow. Um, because I understand business better than, than writers understand business when they write a film. So, the, the, you know, there has to be a certain logic that, that holds up. There's also the style, the delivery of an A personality uh, in business. And I know them. I've been around them all the time. Um, and, and so it's much easier for me to, uh, you know, put the, put the words together in the right order. And, I also, uh, and also to sculpt them in a way that makes this person seem somewhat literally, literarily um, poetic and ironic and sarcastic at the same time. So it was much easier for me to create this, this villain out, out of my own mouth than, uh, than having them write it for me. I resonate with, with something that I, I think you dig, which is that government needs a season when a businessman comes in and trims the fat and does a sort of political cull. Mm -hmm. That's why you were so stoked to have your friend Donald Trump become president. I mean, there's two questions here. One is, like, you know, how I'm not, I know you were asked this before, and I, I can't remember what the answer. But this role that you play, how Trumpy is this role? Oh, it is. Well, well, remember, I know Donald from as a businessman. Yeah, and I've known him for 25, maybe 30 years. Yeah. Um, so I've I've seen him in all aspects, um, and he is he is a caricature of himself, yep. and he just is. Yep. But I also know people like that. I, it, it, I've I've known successful people that that's what they are, and yep. that's what you get. It's going to be that way. It's not going to come out, you know. It ain't going to come out in the world of normal. No, it comes out in the way it, it takes the shape of them. It's like a crazy pitcher of beer that it's poured into. It's going to take the shape of the container it's poured into. Yep. Um, so I, I've known him as a businessman. 
And that's really kind of what I modeled this character off of, that sense of this over-aggressive, uh, myopic uh, businessman who doesn't take no for an answer and will you know, mow down anybody in his path. Uh, <laughs> And 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 and, and, and the reason that I kind of sculpted the character this way is, is Donald did this in, in in Ireland when he went over and boy he just uh, I mean he just pissed so many people <laughs> off with you know the property buys that he did over there to create Dunbeg and his other you know golf courses over there I mean he's you know not a popular man over there right. even though he accomplishes great things sure, sure. as I always say I've never stayed in an Obama or a Hillary but I have stayed in a Trump and the Trump <laughs> is always the best place you go whether you're in Toronto whether you're in Chicago whether you're in uh, in Bay I mean they're just in, in New York City I mean the Trump Trump puts the best stuff up he does yeah, I mean yeah. there's an attention to elegance and detail that is you know far surpass anything anyone else so but john I, uh, john do you do you avoid the trump conversation at parties like i'm friends with kathy lee gifford and she's friends with the don as well and she she's you know she's found it difficult at times to enter into those conversations these oh, days it's horrid it's horrid, it's horrid. It's horrid. <laughs> i mean i don't i don't i have i i have very few friends in the acting or, or, or entertainment community that are that, that are conservative, no. and I won't say that are Trump fans because I wouldn't say that we had the best choice of people for president no. the last uh, election, if I recall. I don't know that Donald was the best choice in America to put up. I don't know that I do know that Hillary wasn't. Right, but I. I, I honestly believe that his philosophy is is a correct philosophy about thinning the herd yeah. out there in Washington. Yeah. I mean, we've just reached a, a point where where politics have become such a a, a festering cesspool <laughs> right now. I mean, let's let's call it what it is. It's just and, and it's it's self perpetuating too. It yeah. just it just kind of breeds this constant. It's like the same personality is going to it all the time. Are you part of that secret club with Gary Sinise and John Ratzenberger? Oh yeah, we we put it all together. <laughs> <laughs> I've had John on the show a couple times, and uh, we we had lunch together down in uh, I don't know somewhere in California. And uh, yeah, it's funny. You know, it's not. I mean, it's not even a secret club anymore. It's just, no, it's it's just conservatives it's just, it's in nice L.A. Know. You know, it's nice to be able to say. Gosh, I'm not alone here in my thinking, even yeah. though I'm alone in my social contacts yeah. uh, with the way that I think. And, and, I, and the thing is, the way that I think isn't wrong. It's the way that I think. Yeah. And there is, you know, there's room for that. There's value in that. And I want to be around people that recognize the fact that I value that. I'm not against anybody else's views. I, I support them. I understand many of them. I understand why they feel the way they do. But yeah. I also believe that mine have, you know, mine have value as well. And what I don't find is that same sense of respect in return. Yeah, totally, totally, I get that. Yeah, John O'Hurley on the line with us. Peterman from Seinfeld, Dancing with the Stars champion, Family Feud host. Here's the thing, here's a part of your story I really dig. Ten years old, you go down and you steal the portable black and white television set and you sneak it into your room under the covers and you watch the Johnny Carson show. And, I mean, Carson was formative for me. He was... He was what I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. But here you are as a 10-year-old, and from the age of three, you knew that you wanted to be an actor for the rest of your life at three years old. And here you are as a 10-year-old, you were worried about what stories you would tell Mr. Carson when you got on his show. 
when I was three years old, people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grow up. Yep. And with a sense of disgust that only a three-year-old can muster, I would put my hands on my hips, I would point to the black and white TV in the corner of our living room, and I would say, well, I am an actor, so that's what I'm going to be. <laughs> and it's not that I wanted to be one, it's that instinctively I knew that I was one. And whenever I watched television, I always projected myself into that scene. I said, I'm there, I should yeah. be there. Yeah. So my life, I grew up that way, and I do tell the you know that that one uh, coincidence where I did have the TV up there, and because you know watching Johnny Carson was my it was my acting lesson. Sure. That's how actors talked, and actors always had stories. So I would listen to the stories of the actors on Johnny Carson at night, and I did one night during a commercial break. I walked around the room again with my hands on my hips, <laughs> and I and, and and I remember saying to myself, "What am I going to do when I finally get onto the show? I don't have any stories to tell." So you cut to the first time I was on the car, the Tonight Show, which Leno had taken over by the time I made it there. So I was sitting in the chair right next to uh, uh, to Jay, and uh, and we went to a commercial break. And he says, "Can you stay over the, to the next segment?" So I said, "Great, sure." I said, so "That's good. It's always a good sign when yeah. they tell you to stay." Sure. Over. So while he's going through his notes with his producer, I am gripping both sides of the chair, and I'm looking straight out into the audience. And Jay stops with his notes for just a second, looks over at me and catches me, and I'm just in a trance, looking straight out, and he says, John, you okay? And I said, I'm fine. I said, I'm fine. I said, I'm just uh, just saying hi to a 10-year-old kid. Nice. Nice. Oh, story. great True moment. Growed up in Connecticut. Done growed up in Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> minored in opera. Won the theater award because you were the only graduate. Um, senior year in college. Yeah, yeah well, actually, it was at Providence College over the, over the hill in uh, Rhode Island rather than Connecticut. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your voice was the last one to change in high school. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I, 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 had, I enjoyed prepubescence for as long as I could. <laughs> Live with your parents for five years after you graduated because you were scared to become an actor. I was scared of the business of acting. Yeah, I yeah. knew what I could. I knew. I knew that I was an actor inside. I knew that I was a good actor inside. I just didn't know how to make a living at it. And when I graduated as the only theater graduate my senior year, it's not as though I could dump myself on the doorstep of any of our alumni. There weren't any. No. Uh, I didn't even. I didn't have an agent. I didn't even know that whole process. I, all I knew is when you gave me a script, I knew what to do with it. So I had to really think this over because as everybody was going off to these, you know, big eight accounting firm jobs and salesmen's, uh, you know, Campbell's Soup Company, and they were, you know, all of a sudden getting these salaries and cars, and I'm sitting there going, what am I going to do? I have no, I I have no idea. So I stopped dead in my tracks. Went lived with my parents for five years and went into the next most theatrical thing that I could think of, which was advertising and PR, and I ramped up on that uh, pretty quickly. I was uh, director of uh, PR. At, uh, at um, the teaching affiliate for Yale School of Medicine and then uh, the, for the uh, PR director for the American National Red Cross and the blood program. So I was moving up very quickly in that, in that arena, and, and I realized if I didn't jump ship now, I never would. And uh, it was actually the death of my best friend that spurred me uh, into that kind of point-blank reassessment. And, wow. and, and I made a plan for myself, and a year later I was in New York to the day that I made that promise to myself, and I've never looked back. Good I got my you. first show uh, 48 hours after I went to New York. Wow, and how cool... The longest 48 hours of my life. Uh, what? It was what? The longest 48 hours oh, of my yeah, life. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. How cool would it be for your mom to be in line at the grocery store and see your face in the cover of a soap opera magazine? Well, that was her only attachment to theater. You know, I mean, she was... They were, my parents were dead set against me going into, into theater. 
yeah. uh, into the into entertainment. Because, again, they lived in suburban Hartford, Connecticut. My dad was a, a doctor, a, a surgeon. And my mother was in love with the surgeon. And so the two of them, I mean, their whole experience of what entertainment was, was <laughs> kind of like mine uh, on The Tonight Show and watching, you know, reading The Inquirer in the, in the uh, grocery <laughs> yeah, line. Yeah, that's right. Well, speaking of the soap opera days, how's your twin doing, the bouncer from the Limelight Disco? <laughs> the D's, Dems, and Do's guys. D's, Dems, and Do's, I tell you. Yeah, well, every, you know, I was the first twin brothers on daytime television back in the uh, 1984, I think it was, when we started this, 40, 1985, maybe. Uh, but anyway, I, so you have me to thank for that awful thing, that, that, that awful convention that they do on daytime. But anyway, um, but in order to do twin brothers you have to they have to hire somebody who looks like you from behind so they can shoot over the shoulder uh, so that you can you know talk to yourself if you're going to have these two person scenes and in some cases have fist fights with myself yeah, yeah. um so they hired this uh, guy who was a bouncer down at the limelight um uh, nightclub back a very famous old church down in the chelsea area now, hold, on, hold on a second i want to get my engineer who's not paying attention to pay att- this is going to be the best story you will hear all day. Are you I'm, ready, Tim? I'm listening. Listen to this story. It's amazing. Okay, go, John. Has he assumed the posture of defeat there on the floor? <laughs> wow. Curled into a little fetal ball, screaming, Mommy, make him stop. You know what, John? That's every week is basically that that's assumption your, position I take. All right. Turn your uh, mic off. Okay, go. So anyway, so anyway, I'm sitting there. So they, they hire this bouncer who was my size. He had dark, back then I had jet black hair. And so over the shoulder, he looked pretty much like me, same height, six three, and so anyway, they kept shooting. But unfortunately, he had this kind of, you know, this kind of Bronx kind of talk. You know, everything was kind of like this. So he would say my lines, and I'd be listening to him say my lines and going, "I can't believe you're talking like that, and you just can't talk." So it was really throwing me off, and I couldn't even get into his cadence of, of the way that he would deliver his lines. And so I said, oh, you, so I said to the producer. Look, he's the worst actor in the world. Just tell him to just stand there, and I'll, I will pace my lines so that I can do the, 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 the responses yeah, yeah. correctly. And so fine. So we'd finish the scenes, and this went on for about over a year. We'd finish the scenes, and he goes, "Well, if they're finished with me, I'm going to go back down to my to my dressing room and, and finish my play." I said, "Your play?" He says, "Yeah, I'm writing a play about my life." I said, "Oh, <laughs> good for you." <laughs> it was Chaz Palminteri. That was Bronx's tale that he was writing in the dress. Wow. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's always how it goes. He was body double for, he was, that's how he made his living, was between bouncing and, uh, and uh, body doubling for me. So, hey, I, how you doing? How you doing? Hey? How you doing? Jeez. Any other so, firsts? Uh, any? I mean, you know, it's so funny that every time we see each other now, we always kind of sit back and laugh about that. Oh, you know, I can imagine. In time. I can imagine. Did not, and it did absolutely nothing for his career. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um, John O'Hurley, any other first? I mean, the whole Dancing with the Stars dance-off thing, I mean, that was kind of a weird first scenario. Actually, I've got, I, I have a friend who, I think she came in second, Candace Cameron Bure. She was on, I don't know, a few years ago. and that, I mean, that the was a... Year. It yeah. was the first year they, they built that entire franchise on... I was the first person they asked to be on the show, and I didn't know that. Until I went, they took me to lunch one day, showed me the videos of its of its uh, uh, London predecessor called Strictly Come Dancing, and uh, and they said we want to do this show as a summer replacement series, and I said great, I'll be glad to host it, and they said no, we want you to do it, and I said no, I'll be glad to host it, and they said no, we have a host, we want you to do it, 
And I said to myself, well, I always think that God speaks through opportunities. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Who else have you got? And they said, well, you're the first person we've asked. Wow. And then they said, and they followed it up with this statement, which blew me away. They said, but now we have you. We know we can get a vendor Holyfield. <laughs> what? That's exactly what I said. And then it hit me. It hit me. They were, so to they speak. were trying to do was finally give America what they had been hoping for for nearly 20 years. The John O'Hurley Evander Holyfield matchup finally on the level playing field of ballroom dancing. And I don't know if you remember going back, but I took him out in the third round with my Foxtrot. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you heard it here on the Drew I Marshall beat, Show. I beat the champ. Ugh. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. George Ford, I, I remember uh, interviewing George a while back, and boxers just have an interesting head. <laughs> it's been beaten up a little bit. Yeah. They yeah. do. He said uh, he named all his kids, what is it, George, Georgina, George Jr., George Yeah, they're all third, George, George III, yeah. But he said the doctor told him to do that because he may not be able to remember his kids' names that's eventually, <laughs> so that's his thing. Okay, so you did the last four seasons of, what was that show called again? Uh, Family. Seinfeld? Stein, Steinberg. Yeah. Stein. What was the crap show that you were in that got canceled the day hey, before? Hey, 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 you're talking about my misspent youth. Stop it. The, the day was, before uh, you became actually, Peterman. What was that was show? A, it, was a very, it was a very funny show. And, and, and one of the funniest shows that I think I've ever been on <laughs> uh, in terms of the writing. The writing was some of the best I've ever seen. Right. But we were just, you know, we were, they were bouncing us around. It was a, a sitcom called A Whole New Ball Game. Okay. Uh, had a fabulous cast. Uh, you know, a cast that you see these people everywhere now. But just couldn't keep the show alive. So anyway, we were canceled on a Thursday morning. ABC said, don't come to work, uh, or pull the plug. And so I went out to dinner that night with my manager, crying in my beer, trying to take the cancellation as personally as I possibly could. <laughs> and, 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 and Larry David's office had called and said, yeah. we heard that you know, the show got canceled and we have this guest star role tomorrow. I oh, was starting tomorrow, but and we think you know John could kind of hit it out of the park, so come, would, he, would he come over and uh, we're starting to table read about noon. And um, I said to my manager, I said, tell him no. I said, I'm really licking my wounds over this cancellation. I said, I'm just not in the mood, and I don't really want a guest star on somebody else's show. Yeah. And so he never called. And the next morning, he called me really early, and he says, get out of bed, go over there, and just go have some fun. Blow it out of your system. Yeah. And I said, all right, you're probably right. So anyway, I went over there, and they handed me the J. Peterman catalog, this oddly shaped pastel pastel drawings of clothing with long Hemingway-style adventure stories attached to it, as though you were climbing K2 in your Oxford button-down. And I said, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. They said, well, we just want them to sound the way the catalog is written, as though this is, you know, the one-man adventurer, and he's, you know, know, wherever he goes, he's always dressed, overdressed for the role, for the part. And so I said, all right. So it, it struck me as a little bit of a 40s radio drama style with a little bit of a bad Charles Corralt. And so that was the, you know, the genesis of the character. But it was, uh, so I, I, I ended up on the show, and they, Seinfeld being the most disorganized show on television, never had the entire script written. So during the week that they were completing it, Elaine is now working for me, and at the end of the show she said, I'm working for the J. Peterman catalog. And everybody turned to me and they said, well, it looks like you got yourself a job. I said, it's not bizarre. Wow. The show I I originally said no to. I have a Larry David story. It's not a really cool story, but can I share it with you? Do you mind? Please do. Okay, thank you very much. I was having a meeting with a guy who was uh, Larry's attorney. I can't remember his name. Anyway, who was Seinfeld's 
nemesis. It was Newman. Newman. Who was George's nemesis? Do you remember? Steinbrenner? Um, no. No. Um, Why can't I remember this guy's name? This is not going to be a good story if I can't remember his name. George's John? nemesis. Yeah, George's nemesis. He would scream out his name. Anyway, so Larry David and this guy were out golfing, and they had a bet. And uh, this guy lost the bet, and Larry said, you'll find out how you're going to pay for this. And he ended up, you know, using this guy's name as, uh, as this nemesis on Seinfeld. Newman. Might have been the worst story I've Frank, ever... No, Frank Constanza was no, his dad. No, it's not what I'm talking about. Uh. Anyway, um, personally, I think, and I think you may agree with me on this, John O'Hurley, hardest character to play on Seinfeld, George. What do you think? Yes. Well, that's why I always, I, I mean, George was the toughest character, and I've, I've written about that, I've spoken about it, because it's just, it, George was tour de force mediocre, and passionately mediocre. He screwed his way to the middle, <laughs> swinging from the middle rung on the ladder of life. And that is the toughest character to play, because normally, you'd, if you looked at every other sitcom, you'd have this kind of dumpy little kid and, you know, kind of, you know, it just, and the personality would go with it. But Jason Alexander is a tour de force actor with a passion and a delivery, and, a, and he's one of the smartest actors I've ever worked with. And that is what it takes to play mediocre well. It has to be passionate. You have to really want to swing. You want to li literally be there in the meaty part of the bell curve, the C, the C student. And that was George. No matter what happened, he was going to be a That's C funny. student. That's funny. I'm proud about it. But that was the toughest character to play, because every other character could go off to extremes and whatever. But it was the toughest character to play. And I, I dare say that if... Another character had been somebody. They'd cast somebody else that was more clicheish in that role. That series would have died because yeah. it would have fallen apart in the middle. So interesting. Like this is acting class one hundred and one. You need to be lecturing on just this. The <laughs> the eternally enthusiastically mediocre. That's the name of your lecture. Yes, exactly. Yeah, screw <laughs> your way to the middle. to the middle. Yeah. By the way, uh, the guy that I was meeting with, his name was Lloyd Braun. And that's the nemesis of George. I, I did find that name, but that was Lloyd a list Braun. of names. <laughs> well, I can only imagine with your older sister, Carol, dying in 1970 at the age of 17 due to epileptic seizures, mm -hmm. that you might have looked skyward with a little bit of what the heck is going on. Mm -hmm. So what have you done with that? I mean, I struggle with belief big time. And I don't know what you believe. I don't give a holy grunt, actually, what you believe. I just want to know, do you believe? How do you believe? Well, I do. And it's, it's, it's at my core, my fundamental, uh, I, you know, I pray all day long quietly in my head. Um, and it's never, up, it's never farther than a moment or two away. And I'll tell you why, that it's, it, it's a source of strength for me, because in a world that is distracted, as T.S. Eliot said, distracted from distraction by distraction, and you want to live, and if you live out here in Tinseltown, add another distraction to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a terribly um, difficult world to live in and be grounded, to be authentic. And I find that my sense of faith is really what grounds me. And what I also like about it is that faith good faith is eternally redeemable so that at any one moment if you go askew that the next decision that you make gets you right back on track again hmm. 
And I love that idea that everything is eternally redeemable so that you're not, you know, it's, you know, make your bed and you lie in it type of, it's not that type of world to me that I can redirect myself at any one moment. I like the idea that because I believe that I know what it means to be still. And stillness is, to me, the most authentic way to live because it allows me to appreciate everything that's going on around me, not distracted by the future or the past, not about expectations or shame. I can kind of live in the moment and appreciate the volume of that moment and the wonder of the moment. And then it also allows me the, my faith also allows me the idea of being appreciative in recognizing that, that every human being is, there's, a, there's an inherent value and there's an inherent vulnerability in every human being. And that if you focus on that, then you've given that person the greatest gift you'll ever give them, which is your full attention. And that to me is all the things that I think my faith does for me. But it also, every one of those makes me a better actor as well. Well, the redeemable. I mean, this is why you dig this movie so much. Swing Away. By the way, the website is swingawaymovie.com. Swingawaymovie.com releases October 13th in select markets and on uh, video on demand. And uh, John stars as the big jerk in this movie. <laughs> Uh, the developer that just wants to run over the... the uh, it is, and it produces one of the most unlikely challenge matches that you will, that, a la Caddyshack, that you will uh, ever see on film. And you, it, you and a gopher? Yeah, no, no, me and a 10-year-old girl. Same thing. <laughs> Same thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful film, and it is wonder, it's a wonderful film about redemption, about rediscovering and, yeah. and, and purpose. Yeah. yeah. We celebrate Thanksgiving up here in Canada on Monday, and you celebrate a birthday, I believe. How about that? Isn't that convenient? Um, what are you going to do for your birthday? You know, I'm going to spend it very quietly. Uh, sadly, my uh, my wife is uh, out of town. She's uh, been drawn away on business, so it'll be uh, just me and my 10-year-old son. Wow. So Can I just be really inappropriate and awkward and say, you married up so big. Yep. Yep, she's a hottie. What? That's what I was thinking of. I didn't know if I could say that, but, you know. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, she's a hottie. She's really something. She's a hottie. I, I married a beautiful blonde scratch golfer who loves the Boston Red Sox. Now, those are, you know, for me... That doesn't get any better than that. I can't do any better than that. No. No. What's your What's your boy's name? It's uh, William Dylan O'Hurley. We call him Will. Will the Thrill. <laughs> Will the Thrill. Yeah, he's quite a... He's And, and quite a good boy, too. He really is. He's uh, very sensitive, very... Interesting. He has a wonderful sense of irony, and uh, he's grown up the right way. We're very pleased with him. Are you? You're still tight with uh, Mr. Cranston, are you? Very much so. Very much so. We just had dinner last week. Speaking of a liberal and a conservative, <laughs> that's where I was. That's exactly where I was going. I mean, oh, yeah, we are. We, we, you know, but the, but we're the best. We are the best of what that means. Yeah. Because Brian and I can sit together, and we do, and and we sit and we have interesting discussions because yeah. i'm not trying to convince him of anything and nor is he trying to convince me of anything he has, he looks at things differently but it gives it, it what it does is it rounds the edges of the way that i feel and and vice versa i round off the edges on the way that he feels yeah. so that you know you at least you come away with perspective and that's really what we should be doing in in this world is engaging in conversation and and not in, in character assassination that it's you know it's become an entertainment now. If you're a conservative, you're you know you're either a racist or a, or a neo-Nazi. Yeah. 
you know, it's like, uh, I don't know where all this came from, but it's like, come on, that's ridiculous. I have a, another good friend who's in, uh, who was in the soaps, and I think she's done a little recurring thing. Her name is Tracy Melkier, and she's also in the conservative. She's married to a guy in the, who used to be on the SWAT team in L.A., so there's definitely some conservative thing happening there. And, mm-hmm. and she showed up. They did a big reunion for, was it Y&R? That... Yes, yes. I was invited to it, and I couldn't go, unfortunately. Okay, all right. Well, she went with somebody that was part, some bigwig in the Republican Party, and that chattering that was going on about, can you believe that Tracy brought this person, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, <laughs> you guys live in a whole weird world down there. It's just, a very world. You yeah. know, and as G.K. Chesterton, it's all a temperament, and unfortunately, G.K. Chesterton once said, the trouble with artistic temperament is it doesn't really produce very much art. It produces temperament. And then it's like, to me, an artist, art should be something that's free, yeah. and, and our freedoms are God-given. They're not, uh, they're not uh, bestowed by actors' equity or, or the Screen Actors Guild or anything yeah. else. It's, 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 you know, these are God-given rights. I was emceeing a March of Dimes gala a few months ago down in Toronto, and the speaker was R.J. Mitty, uh, who played Brian Cranston's son on Breaking Bad. Oh, yes. Okay, sure. What a good kid. A good kid. And, you know, we started talking a little bit about this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's um, he's of that age and maybe the mindset where he just doesn't give a holy grunt about so much of the stuff that hijacks people's careers sometimes, you know? I don't know. Anyway. Well, listen, happy Canadian Thanksgiving. Happy thank birthday. And, uh, and thank you for being part of a movie that was probably going to make my eyes leak. Every once in a while, this fluid you know, it comes out of my does. eyes. When I, when I watch this film and the four screenings I've been to, I get very... Mo- I mean, again, I'm, I'm the jackass in this film. Yeah. But you get past that very quickly, and this little 10-year-old girl that we hired, she is uh, cast with this, the lead in this uh, film. She is she's the young, next little Catherine Hepburn. I mean, yeah. she is an extraordinary little actress. Uh, and Shannon uh, just took the, the the wonderful chemistry between the two of them is is really just extraordinary. Uh, it, it's just it, I can't watch it and not cry at the end. Ugh, you're killing me. Yeah, I cried in Hook. <laughs> That's right. Silence of the Lambs. Those yes, the, I did as well. <laughs> while I was eating my flava beans. Mm, nice Chianti. Uh, John, what a pleasure. It was an absolute blast, and oh, uh, you, you gave us an enormous amount of time. And uh, thank you, thank you, sir. My pleasure. Great to to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye.